Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. If a visitor from another planet had to choose one 24-hour period to try to grasp the effects of the Trump presidency, they couldn't do better than last Thursday noon to Friday noon. The fourth hearing by the January 6th Select Committee on Thursday revealed a coup attempt through the exploitation of a mid-level obscure official at the Department of Justice that seemed to come closer to keeping Donald Trump in illegitimate power and thus spelling the end of the democracy than any of the harrowing episodes the committee has documented to date. That hearing, along with the hearing two days before that focused on efforts to corruptly enlist state officials to masquerade as Trump electors, put on vivid display the worst qualities of the 45th president. His indifference to all public good, spectacular inclination to lie brazenly, willingness to exploit anybody at arm's length, and essential ruthless thuggishness. Then the following day, the other shoe dropped and it was a thunderous blow. Candidate Trump had promised to nominate Supreme Court justices who would be willing to overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which together for 50 years had provided basic constitutional protection to a woman's right to choose. For all his fecklessness, judicial appointments were Trump's single area of noteworthy success. And in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, his three Supreme Court appointees joined two other arch-conservative members to overrule Roe and deliver the grand prize that pro-life constituents had dreamed about for decades. Shocked and outraged Democrats promised in response to mobilize at the ballot box, but it is far from clear that they have any feasible response to the biggest court decision in many years. To assess the fallout of these two explosions, and take stock of where they may bring us as a country. We welcome three expert commentators and talking Fed stalwarts, and they are. Katie Benner. Katie covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Previously, she worked at the Times San Francisco Bureau covering Apple, Venture Capital, and Startups. And before that, for Bloomberg and Fortune Magazine, thanks, as always, for joining, Katie. Thanks for having me. Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post covering politics, foreign and domestic policy, and threats to Western democracy. Also a commentator on MSNBC, and prior to her work with The Post, she wrote for Commentary Magazine and served as a real-life labor law attorney for two decades. Jen Rubin, Thanks for being here. Nice to always be here with a fellow Bolte. Right. Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU, the Faculty Director of Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network, a leading expert in family law, constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. She's an author of Cases on Reproductive Rights and Justice, the first case book in the field writes widely, offered commentary widely, and I just want to say in the 36 hours since Dobbs come down, has been killing it in her TV commentary. Thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for being here, Melissa Murray. Thanks for having me. All right, 
So where to begin? I guess I'd like to start with the opinion itself. It's a little bit aside from that. How did you like the play, Mrs. Lincoln? But result aside, what do we think about the legal handiwork of the opinion? Alito's craft. If you're going to write an opinion overruling Roe versus Wade, how did he and the court do? How will it stand the test of time? Because surely it will be held up for decades to come. Well, if this is the best that originalism can produce, I think we can all agree it's a bunch of bunk, frankly. And I would look at two major problems, actually three, but primarily two. First, his history of access to abortion is bizarrely inaccurate and cherry-picked. And that's just basically dishonest. And we've all seen the commentary about his dividing line between quickening and non-quickening. Even he lets it slip out during the course of the opinion that, oh yeah, after quickening, definitely abortion was illegal. So that raises the question, what is he talking about from conception forward? Second issue, and I think this is really what is galling for many of us, there's really no discussion at all about the effects on women. It talks at length about this kind of pasted together history. It talks about the interest in, quote, fetal life. It doesn't explain how that is an interest other than, of course, by religious reference. But there is zero attention to live women. There's no sense of balance. There's no sense of the consequences. It's dismissive, if not willfully ignorant. And they are treated like non-people for purposes of the opinion. And lastly, what I say is that this really exposes the inanity of originalism. We are supposed to take as gospel the law according to 1868, when the 14th Amendment was first passed. In 1868, women did not have the right to vote, although blacks nominally did. In most parts of the countries, they didn't. There were no disabled rights. There were no rights for children. We go on and on. I think they couldn't contract for themselves or make legal decisions for the most part. Right, exactly. They couldn't own property. They couldn't have credit. I mean, really, is that the world that we're supposed to go back to? It really does a wonderful job of exposing the fundamental flaw and inanity of originalism, that we're supposed to take this one moment in time and freeze everything as if there's no legal development, there's no history, there's no social development. Since then, and the notion of our deepest legal traditions apparently began and ended in 1868. So I found the whole thing, aside from the result, so shabby and intellectually dishonest, it really does lead credence to the dissent's position that they just did it because they could do it. They had the votes. So I want to touch on some of the themes that Jennifer has raised. I mean, one, the origins of originalism are rooted in a response to the Warren Court, which conservatives see as horribly activist. And the idea behind originalism is if you root your interpretation of the Constitution in either 1789 when the Constitution was ratified or 1868 when the Reconstruction Amendments were ratified, a second founding moment, if you will, then you will undoubtedly restrain the discretion of judges because they will be tethered to these original meanings at these two different times. 
Thinking about originalism as a tool of restraint, I think, is completely belied by this opinion. I think what we have seen with this opinion is that originalism, no less than any other school of interpretation, is wildly susceptible to judicial discretion. Like, they have effectively cherry-picked the history that they want. Like, here's an originalist interpretation of this whole issue. When the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, it was done purposely for abolitionist reasons, specifically to end slavery, which the 13th Amendment did, to bring black men into the political community, which the 15th Amendment did, and to repudiate all of the indicia of enslavement, including the absence of bodily autonomy, whether that was over labor or over the fact that Black women were routinely subjected to sexual coercion. And this was widely known. It was talked about in Uncle Tom's Cabin, the most widely read book of the day, that they didn't have control over their families, that their children could be taken away from them at a moment's notice. And so this guarantee of liberty that is in the 14th Amendment is meant to speak to all of these things, the absence of this family and bodily integrity that the enslaved routinely dealt with during their period of enslavement. And so if we want to talk about originalism, we could talk about the 14th Amendment being rooted in that tradition, trying to vest these rights of heart and home that were understood as human rights that were denied to people who were understood to be less than human because of the condition of their lives, because they were enslaved. That's not mentioned. Nor is equality mentioned, also part of the 14th Amendment and also one of the key hallmarks of that second founding period. We wrote a brief, um, Reba Siegel, Serena Mayeri, and myself wrote a brief arguing that the court's equality principles, many of which follow Roe, are decided after 1973, repudiate this idea that the right to an abortion is somehow not rooted in the Equal Protection Clause, not rooted in the equality of women. And Justice Alito cites our brief. I don't know if I need to put that on my resume. I'm so disgusted by it. Right. He cites it, but he doesn't grapple with it. He simply says, this is not discrimination on the basis of sex, see Gedeldig, a 1974 case. He doesn't say anything about United States versus Virginia, a 1996 case in which the court holds that the Virginia Military Institute cannot keep women out simply because girls don't seem to do military school, right? The exclusion is based on a sex-based stereotype that cannot hold. Abortion restrictions are based on sex-based stereotypes that women should be mothers. And for that reason, they too cannot hold. In fact, the entire discussion that Jennifer talked about that's in the majority opinion about what is happening in the 1800s, about these laws that prohibited abortion, all of those laws were animated by sex-based judgments that women's natural role in life was to be wives and mothers. And if that's where all of this is rooted, it is clearly rooted in sex-based stereotypes that are inconsistent with the constitutional guarantee of equal protection. And there's no discussion of that either. It's not just a shabby opinion. It's sloppy, it is itinerant on the history, and it is intellectually bankrupt. I'll add one point. It really picks up on Jen, but it's completely right that there's zero attempt to even recognize that women could have any cognizable interest at stake here. And it's done in this very ham-handed way by just a announcement that we're doing this by rational basis, the very weakest standard of review. There's a breathtaking kind of nastiness or benightedness of, in a swipe saying there's just nothing on the side of women here. That really is the sort of doctrinal move that makes him able to just 
knock everything out. Oh, no, rational basis, rational basis. And so there's no weight at all given to the women's interest. Just one aside, like there's no woman's voice at any point in any of these opinions. There's no solo authored opinion by Justice Barrett for the majority or a concurrence, nor in the dissents is there the voices of women. They write in this sort of univocal way, like almost a per curiam dissent. When I think it actually would have been more forceful for Kagan and Sotomayor to draft the dissent and have Breyer join them. I think missed opportunities on a lot of fronts here. That's a very interesting point, although you can see what they were thinking of. I think they were invoking Casey and the opinion of the three and wanted to be as one. Let me, before leaving the text, serve up, there are four other opinions. There is the dissent, there's Kavanaugh, there's Thomas, and there's the lonely chief justice. Any thoughts basically about any of those? I'll amplify a little, you know, Roberts, how poignant the most important case in his tenure, and he is literally all alone. Are there any things that on second read emerge and seem worth underscoring about any of the separate opinions? Well, I think that how Roberts has lost control of the court, a lot has been made of it. But I think that is the most striking thing about the separate opinions, that he authors this and it almost underscores how little control he has and how little he matters, which is completely bizarre and will be a big deal going forward. You know what I mean? To write an entire opinion saying, These are the things I argued with all of my colleagues and nobody listened to me. So here I am writing it anyway. I mean, that is not a position of strength. I think that the other thing that you see with these opinions is that because Alito does not feel that he needs to address the idea of gender equality as a constitutional right, I think is very striking. I think it will say a lot for how the court deals with a lot of issues, both historic issues and future issues that are going to come out of gender related questions of equality and civil rights. So I think we should really, really be mindful of that, that this is something that is now up for grabs. And I also think that it's very striking that he felt he could do this in large part because this is a very politicized world. These are smart people on the bench. They are paying attention just as everybody is. It is almost like a tacit acknowledgement that he can do this because he can, not because of the makeup of the court, but because of the lack of power of Democrats outside of the Article Three world, right? Democrats They don't have Congress, and Congress is really ineffectual. And executive orders, we know, they will be overturned. So whatever Biden does or doesn't do goes away when Ron DeSantis or somebody else is president. And so if the court understands that, they can be, that's how aggressive you can be in a world where the checks and balances are not working. So there, of course, all this discussion, the Kavanaugh opinion that I think was designed to say, don't hate me, America, I'm a good guy. The question is, what about all the other unenumerated rights? That's what you've seen as the real focus of much of the coverage now. Does this mean, especially with the Thomas opinion, that Obergefell and Lawrence versus Texas are vulnerable? It's clear, I think, that the court is at pains to try to say, oh, we don't want to, at least for now, we've got time on our side, take a wrecking ball to these cases. But how do they think they're going to avoid it? This is put huge wind in the sails of the most conservative states. Someone will pass a statute outlawing same-sex marriage, even though it will be patently unconstitutional, as the Dobbs statute was. But somebody will do it. Some same-sex partners will be denied a license. They will sue. It will come up to the court. 
maybe the court lets it go once, but how do they avoid doing this? And then when it comes up, we know where Thomas will be in Alito. Will Kavanaugh or others just say, oh, well, that was then, this is now? They've put into place something that is bigger than them in the sense it's not just up to them. They'll have to deal with these questions. Am I missing something? No, I think you're looking at two ends of the same problem, that once Roe goes, there's no bottom. The reason why Robert sounds so pathetic and like 15 weeks, could you take 10 weeks? You know, it's like an auctioneer. It's because there's no intellectual bottom once you say there's no fundamental right for women. A second point, the totality that Alito relies on is embarrassing, which is abortion is different because it's abortion. That's basically his rationale for not going through the parade of horribles. And there really is no intellectual distinction. Well, there are other issues, you know, at stake there. This one was, quote, fetal life or the sanctity of marriage or whatever else you want to do as you go through this parade of horribles. And so there really is no bottom. And we're down quite a slope. You know, I went back because I was trying to find all the examples of substantive due process. You know, Nebraska v. Meyer was in 1923. Right, yeah. These were a pair of cases which basically said you have the right to send your kid to a private school, you have a right to send your kid to a school that teaches German. So why would that be the case? Why does anyone have control over any part of their life? Where is that? And that's kind of what Thomas is saying. So I guess we're off to the races. But the starting pistol for the races is held by the most conservative states. I don't think they fire the pistol at Loving. I don't think they fire it at Myers. But they will fire it at these others. So it's not a matter of the court's will, even if they wanted to. Contraception, we're going to have a big fight right. about IUDs. We're going to have a big fight about the uh, morning after pill. We're going to have a big fight about this whole line of things. So if these people think they're getting out of the business of abortion by sending it to the states... It's a joke, it's right? absurd. We're down a, a rabbit hole here. Kavanaugh actually makes that quite clear. I mean, I know this opinion is sort of like, hey, don't hate me. It's law, not personal. But he does say at one point in the opinion, like, you know, this is simply going to leave this to the states and to the people for democratic deliberation and the people through their state Neutrality. legislatures and Congress, which tees up the idea that if Congress changes hands and the presidency changes hands, this isn't going to be left with the states there's going to be a federal ban on abortion. So just in terms of abortion, this isn't going to be left to the states. And even if it is, there's going to be a raft of interjurisdictional conflicts and litigation over what states can do. Can they be extraterritorial and sue doctors in other states for providing abortions to their citizens? So that's going to happen. The Thomas opinion, I'm so glad he actually wrote this because I have been saying since the leaked opinion dropped in May that There is nothing in the logic of the leaked opinion, despite Justice Alito's protest to the contrary, there's nothing in the logic of the leaked opinion that sequesters these other rights from abortion. And, you know, I said this and some very famous, very smart people told me publicly that I was hysterical. And I'm here to say, boom, lawyered, I told you so. I'm so glad he wrote this because he's saying the quiet part out loud. And It's true. No other justice joined his concurrence, but they don't have to because the intended target is not his colleagues. It's the lower federal court judges where his acolytes slash former clerks slash current judges are going to 
husband and steward this logic so that when it finally does come up to the court in two or three years, it's going to be perfected and packaged. And this court, this YOLO court, will totally go for it. Yeah, perfect point. And not just them, but also the Republican legislatures of Alabama and Louisiana. He is teed it up perfectly, but saved himself. Interracial marriage is not on the table because he still has to go home to Ginny. <laughs> All right. And look, people say now it's the Thomas Court. So, Katie, this is a grim point, perhaps, but picking up on what Melissa's saying, the other main point in the coverage to date has been, okay, but now we go to the ballot box and you can't lose courage and you have to fight, et cetera. But two questions. The Supreme Court, I saw, you know, on Friday, there were 10,000 people there. Yesterday, maybe 400. So the question is, do you think the social reaction, the fires will stay banked for, you know, months and months? And then second, is there really, other than shaking your fist, is there really much that the democratic process can achieve here once the court has made this constitutional call? So I think the spires will stay banked for conservatives. I have every faith in the world that they will stay banked for conservatives because I think what we're forgetting in this conversation, I do spend a lot of time with conservatives and social conservatives. I grew up in a socially conservative family. Is that for conservatives, this was ending murder and they can rally around ending murder. It doesn't matter if you are black or white or Asian, old or young, if you are a man or a woman. This is an issue that brings together a group of people who don't always agree on a lot of stuff. Ending murder is bad. And that's something that's been rhetorically built over 20 to 30 years. It's not something that was an animating tenet of the conservative movement 50 years ago, but this has been carefully created, crafted, and honed. And so I think that this will continue to animate conservatives as they fight to end abortion state by state and then federally. This for them is the beginning and they just had a huge, huge, huge win. When they look at the Supreme Court decision, what they are seeing is ending murder, okay? So I think that's a really big deal. We've also seen at the same time, I have like no faith that this will animate Democrats because I've never really seen in my lifetime Democrats come together around any issue so fully. They can't come together around feminism because there are a lot of sexists in the Democratic Party. I'm sorry to say it, but like you can't bring men and women together over the idea that women have rights because I don't think that all people in the Democratic Party even fully believe that in the way that conservatives essentially believe that murder is wrong. We even see it's hard to bring Democrats together around race. They haven't found the issue. And I don't know that abortion is the issue. And I don't know that I've seen Democrats come together and spend a decade or two decades systematically trying to win state house after state house after state house in order to put in place trigger laws that come together around an event in the future that may or may not ever happen they're all hoping for. Like, I just haven't seen that. So I actually have a lot of faith that this will animate conservatives and they will fight and fight and fight and fight. I don't know what Democrats are going to do, actually. I think the New York Times did a beautiful story today just looking at how, going all the way back to 2010, how state houses across the country flipped from Democrats controlling 27 state legislatures and leaving 2010 with 16 and Republicans starting with 14 and ending up with 25. That was a huge moment. And I don't know, like, like I said, I don't know what Democrats are going to do, but I feel like for conservatives, this is a huge watershed moment and it's going to be more active for them. And of course, this kind of happened in plain sight, and we're now, Democrats in general, are waking up to, holy shit, look at the impact of that. So that's a brilliant point, Katie. I hadn't thought, like, wow, they got the big victory. Now they 
relax a little, but you're right. I mean, Pence comes out, he's obviously a presidential hopeful, the next day with a grand celebration. Is it Texas who made it an immediate state holiday? I don't really know what happens the election. Like this midterm, you already hear people talk about it as a foregone conclusion that it's going to be one that favors Republicans. So if Democrats are extremely upset and they go to the ballot box and they still see that they lose, they lose the House, they might lose their own state legislative races, does that animate them or does that make them feel like, why bother? I don't know. I'm not a pollster. Well, so can I add something to what Katie said? Please. I, I think this is exactly right. There has been a kind of forced discipline that the Republicans have marshaled here, and they've been incredibly focused about this for years and years. Right. It's like a 40-year program. That... But it's a 40-year program that's not necessarily just about abortion. So it is about taking over these state houses in part to be able to pass these laws dealing with abortion, but also to be able to pass laws that make it harder for people to vote, to redistrict states so that it is harder for state legislatures to be blue or to even register the objections of those who disagree with the conservative agenda. It's all joined up. And I think one of the missed opportunities of the Democrats is to see these issues as completely siloed. Like there is voting rights, there's reproductive rights, there's you know these other things. They're actually all joined up. And I will just say, Black women have been saying this for forever. We have been saying this for forever. When you have assaults on the right to vote, you make it easier to pass these aggressive laws in a wide range of areas, including reproductive rights. And this is where I think Katie is absolutely right. Feminists have been harping on abortion laws. They've been inattentive to voting rights. The things are inextricably intertwined, and Democrats would do well to see them as part of a collective program of dismantling democracy to allow extremism to flourish. It was interesting in the reaction out in the states. Although you had some national figures like Pence running forth to wave the flag, Republican governors were very quiet about this. I think many of them have been the dog that's caught the car here. What does someone like a Mike DeWine do? Is there anyone like Mike DeWine? <laughs> but, you know, maybe what does Mike DeWine do? But what about generally? Right, right. So they have a little bit of a dilemma here. And it was also interesting to see. Now, we're still in the primary phase for some of these races. So Democrats have been very vocal. But I think you are seeing much more enthusiasm and perhaps a sense that maybe this is the thing that can finally get people to the polls among Democrats. Tony Evers in Wisconsin had a brilliant idea, which is I'm simply going to extend a, I think he's a commutation, but it's really a pardon for anyone who violates these laws. They have one of these snapback provisions going back to the 19th century. And he says, I'm just going to pardon people. I'm not going to allow it. So I think you're going to see those sorts of issues arise. And this, of course, is going to be now an issue in every single race. What's a DA going to do? Do you want to get a commitment from your district attorney? Are you going to prosecute women? Are you going to seek prison terms for women? What about doctors? So I think Democrats have an opening. I'm not sure they're going to take it, but they have an opening. And I won't give away the surprise, but I have a substantial piece for Monday, which posits that there is a greater unifying theme here that perhaps Democrats have been searching for. And that is very simple. It's the right to 
privacy and the pursuit of happiness. That in a diverse, multicultural society, no one gets to tell you about these intimate decisions. And I think you're right. You have to make it about more than voting rights. It has to be about reproductive rights. It has to be about gay rights. And I think they need to take advantage of a somewhat sort of libertarian sense that people have in other contexts, which is they don't like the government having all this information about them. They don't like the government meddling in their stuff. And I think Democrats have a huge opportunity to forge a bigger coalition that says the purpose of our government is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the only way in a diverse society that we can do that is by allowing this sphere of personal self-determination. I see what you mean as a broader theme, but I'm absorbing what I, at least it's feeling to me like Katie's really trenchant point, which is Democrats don't do coalitions very well. They've stayed issue by issue animated. And in fact, so much of the success of the Republicans can be encapsulated in abortion in the sense of the grand assimilation of religious Republicans to sort of non college graduate Republicans to establishment Republicans, and all of them agreed to row in the same way on Roe versus Wade. And here we have it. And do the Democrats ever row in the same way on anything? So the thought, Katie, you're really rocking my world, but the thought that not only isn't this the silver bullet to try to propel Democrats to some chance, but even in isolation, it's just another deficit for them going into the midterms. This is exactly why Democrats never do coalitions, is because they begin rendering the garments before the day is done. The reason Republicans do these things well is they set a goal and then they say, go for it. So I'm not all that well disposed to, oh, Democrats are lame, they never do anything. Well, let's do it. And that is a huge problem in organization. It comes from organizations, it comes from pundits, it comes from everyone, which is nothing will change, Democrats are lame. Okay, well, What do we do then? We just give up. So I think there's an analytical part to this, but there's also a political part is, which is, okay, we're just going to like concede the country. And I do think there's something powerful in saying, do you want to live in the 21st century or the 19th century? Or Europe. (laughs) Uh, Right. Um, A lot of travel agencies busy researching property deals for other countries. Those uh, English speaking countries are going to have big real estate bumps. Look, you're 100% right, but we're trying to analyze whether they have it in them. If not this, If not this, what could unite and animate Democrats, right? I mean, this is really the big one. It's time now for our sidebar feature. Today, we are explaining a federal statute signed into law just three months ago, the Ending Forced Arbitration Act. The act amends federal law to give workers a choice about how they'd like to adjudicate any claim of harassment or assault in the workplace. The impetus for its passage was several years of advocacy by Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox News host. And to explain the new law, which in its full title is the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, we have the most appropriate reader, Gretchen Carlson herself. 
She is a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and advocate for women's rights in the workplace. In 2016, she went public with harassment claims against then Fox News chair and CEO Roger Ailes, paving the way for the Me Too movement. Her story has been told in the movie Bombshell and the Showtime miniseries The Loudest Voice. And she's a co-founder of Lift Our Voices, a nonprofit organization fighting to end forced arbitration clauses and non-disclosure agreements in workplace contracts. So I give you Gretchen Carlson explaining the Ending Forced Arbitration Act. The Ending Forced Arbitration Act. On March 3rd, President Biden signed into law the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act. The act amends Title IX, which protects employees and students from discrimination on the basis of sex. Specifically, the new law gives workers a choice about how they'd like to adjudicate any claim of harassment or assault. Do they want to go to the secret chamber of forced arbitration or get their day in court, a Seventh Amendment right? Still, the new law and arbitration clauses in contracts in general can be difficult to understand. So what does the new law really mean? Let's break it down. Forced arbitration agreements have become commonplace in employment contracts. In 1991, only 2% of all employees were bound by them. But estimates show that by 2024, 84% of corporate America will bind its employees with these restrictive clauses. If you have one of these clauses in your employment contract, it means you'll be forced into arbitration if you have any kind of work dispute and that it will be resolved by an arbitrator rather than in a court of law. Many times, employees sign these agreements without understanding what forced arbitration means, and certainly without any knowledge that something bad might happen to them at work. This is a boon to employers and a detriment to employees. Why? Because many of the legal benefits of a trial are tossed to the side, and in their stead, is a much more informal process with far fewer legal protections for plaintiffs. And the process is secret. This new law carves out an important exception only for claims of sexual harassment or assault. Now, employers cannot rely on the protection of an arbitration agreement when employees bring claims of sexual harassment or assault. That said, proving sexual harassment is still an uphill battle. First, the incident must satisfy the definition provided by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And from there, state laws take effect, with each state having its own definition of sexual harassment. Nevertheless, this act is a significant change to the status quo in holding people and institutions accountable for acts of sexual harm. It is the first step towards improving equity in the workplace. For Talking Feds, I'm Gretchen Carlson. Thank you very much, Gretchen Carlson, for explaining the Ending Forced Arbitration Act. Gretchen recently joined the People TV newsroom as a special contributor, and she hosts a daily news podcast on Quake Media. Get the news with Gretchen Carlson. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate. Brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, 
We peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay. But what white Burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white Burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, here's another thing that could animate Democrats. The specter of Trumpism and the deep corruption and the near loss of the democracy to an autocratic thug. So let's talk about the hearings. What a weird week. On Thursday, after the fourth hearing with DOJ, it was so chock full of stuff. The third hearing seemed in the distant past. And then after Dobbs, it's like, oh, remember the fourth hearing? But let's all try to remember the fourth hearing a little bit, nevertheless. And that's the big DOJ hearing and Jeff Clark, etc. So how did the DOJ story, the showdown in the Oval Office with Jeff Clark, the conservative management of DOJ all being completely opposed to him. How did that impact compare with the previous ones? And, you know, what was your takeaway from it? So I thought that the hearing, actually, it was both hearings that week, the hearing that had the DOJ officials and the hearing that had the state officials really worked well together because it was a raft of Republican voices saying we were asked to do something that was unconstitutional. We didn't do it, not because we didn't want Trump to win, but because it was unconstitutional, it was wrong. I've said this so many times. If Trump were to be indicted tomorrow, it would like supercharge him. I can't imagine a world in which Trump is indicted and he doesn't then immediately say he's running for president and all of his supporters don't come out and say, oh my God, I can't believe they've done another witch hunt. We got to save this guy. He is so good at being able to use these sorts of moments to his advantage. I didn't understand. I'm waiting for his like masterclass on it or whatever, but- In terms of the hearings, the most important thing that the hearings need to do is to convince Republicans that what happened is wrong. It doesn't really matter what Democrats think of them. They already think what he did was wrong. If you look at what happened with Nixon, Nixon leaves because Republicans say we won't support you anymore. He doesn't leave because a bunch of Democrats are like, we hate you. They hated him for so many years. What do Republicans think after these hearings? And especially after the Justice Department hearing, I feel like a lot of Republicans that I speak to, first of all, 
a lot of them had not paid any attention to any coverage at all of January 6th after it actually happened. I spoke with even former Justice Department officials who said the first hearing was the first time they saw all of those scenes of violence and they were really struck by them. And then you get to the hearing with the DOJ officials, and that was also very affecting, I think, for some Republicans who were saying to themselves, especially because Rich Donahue was pretty impressive, okay, we want to see ourselves more like somebody like a Rich Donahue or a Rusty Bowers than we want to see ourselves as the people we saw in that first video of violence. And so I think that that was very, very impressive. Obviously, a lot of the things that were said in the hearing have been reported. They were all in the Senate Judiciary Committee report. So it wasn't like new information. It was better packaged information, very effective with very earnest and sincere witnesses who care a lot about democracy. We were just talking about the coalition. It seems to me the cadre of maybe small in number, but influential establishment conservative Republicans have to be really shaken up by that presentation. And just to your point, by the way, Rusty Bowers at the Tuesday hearing, who couldn't have been stronger about saying, don't you try to make me violate my oath, et cetera. I don't, people didn't see this after he gave an interview to Arizona paper and said, oh, yeah, I'll vote for Trump again. That's mind-blowing in a way, but in another way, it packs a real punch that even a guy who's going to vote for him again sees the perfidy of what he did. I see a little bit differently. I think there are two other audiences where it's making a really big difference. What did we see before the hearing started? We saw a FBI raid on Jeffrey Clark's house. Mm -hmm. I think the hearings, and I'm sure they will deny it to the hills, have woken up the Justice Department, lit a bit of a light, and this kind of testimony is going to make a difference with a really important group of people, and that is the line prosecutors, the D.C. U.S. attorneys who are ultimately going to make this recommendation, which I am sure whatever they do. Eastman and Clark, they serve two subpoenas. Correct. So I think that it makes a difference as the Justice Department is trying to figure out their own institutional needs. Do we decapitate these three guys who came forward and say, oh, well, it was for naught. You know, next time, just let the president have his way. Do they have some institutional stake as well as a political stake in not allowing the next time that they're department will be decapitated. And the second is, I don't think we should look for people who change their mind about Trump. People who are swindled never admit they were swindled. People who were robbed and tricked and conned never like to admit it. But what they do say, and this is beginning to happen in some anecdotal evidence from focus groups, it's true in some polling in New Hampshire, is I like Trump, but kind of sick of all this stuff. You know, is there somebody else who's like him? And so the big beneficiary of this week is Ron DeSantis, who can say to them, we all love Trump, but this is such a mess. Aren't we sick of talking about this? Look, you can have this brand new, slightly younger, slightly less, you know, deranged person, and you can get everything you were getting before. And apparently he's starting to get some big fundraisers his way, which is a big sign, yeah? Correct. And what you saw this week was a migration of fundraising. So don't expect Republicans to kind of register and say, oh, yeah, now I think we should get rid of Trump. They're just going to quietly tiptoe back out of the room and suddenly find someone they like better. And that's what Trump has to worry about. And I think that's a legitimate worry on his part, is that it's just 
too much of a hassle, too much of a headache, too much of a problem. Let's go find somebody else better. All right, let's stick, though, with the hearings and their impact. We had, at the end of Thursday, this bombshell, it seemed to me, that they specifically held to the end of six members of Congress seeking pardons. And we'd also heard before about Senator Ron Johnson probably being completely in on the January 6th plan, wanting to give phony electors to Pence the very day. Can the committee do anything with this? Are they going to go after the members of Congress, or is that a third rail that will fall to the department or to nobody? Any thoughts? I don't know if it will hurt, but it could impact for those members of Congress who actually have to run a race this year. It could impact them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Gates. In Republican political consulting circles, They there's already a lot of talk about whether Kevin McCarthy would do literally anything to get rid of Matt Gates. <laughs> right. Poison on the park bench, the sort of Russian method, right? This is perhaps a little bit more ammo for the people in the party who would like to primary him. And there are some. There also, of course, he has some supporters in his district, so it's pretty tricky. So I think it's a lot of ammo for them. I do think that there are a lot of ways in which Congress doesn't want to go after its own members. But this clearly was a moment where Liz Cheney was saying, actually, we don't feel so bad about that. There's a lot of decorum in Congress and there are a lot of norms and we generally don't directly aim at our colleagues, but we're taking direct aim, which I thought was really interesting. And so that will be fascinating to see how it plays out both in their elections, but also in leadership of the party. Super interesting moment for Cheney at the end of the week. The darling of the Democrats coming out on Friday and saying, hooray, they overruled Roe versus Wade. Uh Uh-oh, what do we say now? Well, I mean, to that point, there is the cognitive dissonance of Liz Cheney coming out in support of overruling Roe. But I just wonder if the sort of flood of news of Dobbs, of the decision in the New York guns case, of these hearings, like, is there just too much flooding the zone that most voters cannot extricate them and sort of understand like each of them in isolation is a massive cataclysmic event. I just wonder if like there's just it's an overload and oversaturation. It is a great point. Just boom, 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 and then you move. I think it's a great point. I think it's part of what the committee had in mind in changing their schedule and now going into July. They, a, well, this is a little ironic, but they didn't want to compete with Dodds, which they thought might be next week. But also it's just give people a chance to absorb it a little and then do the new stuff in July. What do you think about that decision to push things back? And what are you sort of anticipating, Katie, you and your colleagues? By the way, Maggie Haberman, Luke Broadwater, Katie Benner have been killing it on the coverage of these hearings, let me just say. But what are you sort of looking toward in the two remaining hearings in July? They're going to want to basically now make the direct link between Trump and the violence. They preview it in the first hearing, and now they're going to really hammer that home. Because I think the idea is, if you want the American public to remember anything, they can forget everything that happened before. These individual hearings that made pleas to different constituencies, they just want to be able to say, this horrible thing that happened is directly because of stuff Trump did and said. And so we'll see a lot, I think, of video footage and testimony that speaks to that. Also, in delaying the hearings, part of the stated reason, and I actually believe this to be the true reason as well, is that they are now getting a lot of material and a lot more cooperation. Because people who they've asked to testify who said no have now seen people like 
a rich Donahue who nobody ever thought was going to testify. You know, like he just doesn't do that. Not because of his politics, because that's not the kind of guy he is. He's behind the scenes low key. Rusty Bowers, they've seen people come out and be really effective. And I think they've decided that they're getting more testimony. And they also have all this documentary footage they need to go through from the documentarian that followed the Trump campaign around. So there's a lot of intel coming in as well. So they need the time to sift through that. I'm really looking forward to that. It's meant to lionize Trump, but he can't keep his mouth shut. He's so uncensored. And he's hours of conversation. Who knows what's going to be in there? One last question about the hearings. You know, all of this has been these set pieces in Washington and different tussles in politics. And then we had this separate and kind of incandescent moment of real people who actually felt the wrath and had their lives completely upended by Trump. And it gave this flavor of almost the nationwide criminal enterprise that the Trump operation has been with foot soldiers to call out anytime. So I just wondered if anyone had any reactions to specifically Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman and just actual people who were able to attest to having their lives turned upside down by the president of the United States personally attacking them. Well, as I wrote on Sunday, I think they were the standouts for all the reasons that you show. There's a somewhat 1930s fascist feel to this, that by wink and nod, the brown shirts get their direction to go off and terrorize people. And that's what totalitarian thugs do. It's the instrumental use of violence. And I think many people get caught up in this notion that this is somehow a victimless crime or he was stopped, so who cares? It's not a victimless crime. First of all, the assault on democracy is real. But secondly, people's lives were ruined and endangered. And I think they definitely brought it home. One thing I would caution on the House members, we don't really know all that they did. We know that they asked for pardons, but I really want to know about that December 21 meeting. Exactly. It's not just they asked for pardons. What did they do that they want the pardons? Yeah. Exactly. What did they do? Was that a transactional meeting where they said, we'll do this. You're going to look after us. That would be like really like blockbuster. But they're going to have to get someone in that meeting to flip, I think, because we don't really know everyone was there. Was it just those six people plus Trump? Were there other people there? What is it that they were assigning themselves to do at that meeting? My prosecutors hat and experience says that both Eastman and Clark have now become very dangerous people for Trump. He played them for stooges. They're completely ruined, middle-level guys. They could be facing real time. I think both Mark Meadows, who has been shamefully absent from this, and even potentially Trump are in some jeopardy. I just want to make one more follow-up point to what you said, Jen, about Che Moss and Ruby Freeman, which is their lives were turned upside down, but they're also stand-ins for all kinds of people whose lives weren't turned upside down, but who like are deterred from just participating in the process because this is the kind of shit that rains down on you. It just cows them or just makes them think, I'm not even going to bother about this. It really harms participatory democracy in that way, it seems to me. All right. We only have a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener, and we often answer in five words or fewer. And today's question is, where will Jeff Clark 
attorney general wannabe who almost almost hit the highest position of law enforcement in the land, where will he be in two years? Anybody, five words or fewer. In jail or witness protection? Teaching at Scalia Law School. <laughs> Great. Mm, talking to Tucker Carlson. Exactly. Fox regular contributor or pinstripes. We're out of time. Thank you very much to Jen, Katie, and Melissa. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we'll be posting full episodes, talking books, interviews, and bonus video content. We're also available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we posted a conversation with former firearm executive Ryan Bussey about how the rise of the AR-15 has changed gun culture in America. And we have one coming up any day with the awesome Juliet Kayyem about her latest article in The Atlantic. You can go to Patreon to look at our latest offerings and then decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Macias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Gretchen Carlson for explaining the bill that she catalyzed, the Ending Forced Arbitration Act. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.